This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Today we're talking to Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, How Fascism Works. Patriarchal masculinity sets up men with the expectation that society will allow them the role of sole protectors and providers of their families. In times of extreme economic anxiety, men, already made anxious by a perceived loss of status, resulting from increasing gender equality, can easily be thrust into panic by demagoguery directed against minorities. Here, fascist politics intentionally distorts the source of anxiety. A fascist politician has no intention of addressing the root causes of economic hardship. Fascist politics distorts male anxiety, heightened by economic anxiety, into fear that one's family is under existential threat from those who reject its structure and traditions. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming on the show. It's it's truly an honor. Thanks so much, Chelsea. It's a terrific program podcast. You have a vital vital task you're doing. Well, thank you. I feel the same way about you. So, on that note, um, I was as I was reading how fa- how fascism works. I was really uh, shocked by how much your content aligned with American hysteria and how all these different themes that we'd been tying together, all these different types of panics against different types of people and different types of situations. um, I didn't really know that I was kind of talking about the process of fascism, keyword being process, right? So something that would really help me is if you explained Uh, what your definition of fascism is and uh, how it is sort of this process, not this destination, because we're hearing this word a lot. We're hearing it. It's a very big buzzword right now. Um, But you, as an expert, I'd love to hear uh, you just define this crazy word. Fascism is a cult of the leader uh, who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, minorities, and leftist radicals. The fascist leader pronounces himself as the representation of the nation and the only solution uh, to bring back the nation in the face of these supposed humiliations. That's that's a great, uh, very succinct. And and how is it? So you say fascism is not this, this destination, but rather, um, what do you see as the process of fascism, and and what is the end result? So we can talk about different things being fascist, and Mm -hmm. people have been minimizing the situation by just saying, we don't have a fascist regime now, so what's to worry about? Well, you know, um, Italy didn't have a fascist regime for several years under when Mussolini was prime minister. Uh, Germany didn't have a fascist regime at the beginning. so, uh, so fascism, regular fascist regimes come about when uh, democratically elected leaders or leaders who've come in through a democratic process undermine democracy from within by stacking the courts, uh, for for example, by taking over various parts of the press. Um, so, uh, so 
so we can talk about fascism as many things. And I think that when we talk about it just as a regime, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Toni Morrison in 1995 in her Howard University commencement address, Racism and Fascism, says that the United States has always preferred, has long preferred fascist solutions to national problems. Mm. Um, We now live in a country with the world's highest incarceration rate. When historians look back on our country and they think about its status, they'll note that it has an incarceration rate that parallels that of the Soviet Union in the early 1950s. So we have many uh, marks of a fascist society here, even though we do not have a fascist regime. Um, We have uh, vilification of minorities as at the very center um, of our politics in both political parties. Uh, And uh, at every election in the United States seems to be about race. Uh, So this is a fascist uh, cult. We have we have deep we have uh, uh, um, Nikhil Pal Singh, an NYU uh, professor, uh, talks about native fascist forces. And we have deep native fascist forces. Um, When I think of fascism, I think of it primarily as a kind of culture a kind of mm-hmm. political culture. And that's why conspiracy theories are so central to it. Um, perhaps it's easiest to begin with its opposite, a democratic culture. Um, now, there are different kinds of anti-democratic cultures. Fascism is just one kind of anti-democratic culture. Um, but uh, but it's the kind that faces us in the United States. It's the anti-democratic threat that faces us in the United States. So that's why I focus, it, focus on that. Um, a, de- a democratic culture is a culture that respects truth. Uh, democracy centered around truth because democracy has two values, freedom and equality. And both freedom and equality require truth. Uh, freedom requires truth because if you're lied to, you're not free. That's what the matrix is about. People in the matrix aren't free. That's why they want to get out of the matrix. You need truth to be free. Uh, And you need truth for equality because political equality is speaking truth to power. A democratic society, a democratic culture is one where a liar is punished. A democratic culture is one where when a politician lies, they lose support. If you want to destroy a democratic culture, you attack the truth. uh, You represent your opponent as a vicious enemy. Uh, not a legitimate political opponent, but as, say, uh, someone who's hiding a pedophile ring. Uh, and then uh, and then and then truth doesn't matter anymore, because who cares if the person hiding a pedophile ring is telling the truth? They're hiding a pedophile ring. And who cares if you're lying? You're defending uh, little children. Yeah, that's a quite uh quite a transportation right into the present moment um and something that we talked about on our fake news episode and i mean how could we not be talking about uh satanic pedophile cults pretty much constantly since the 1980s um but on that note uh I wanted to ask you how you think conspiracy theories and disinformation, uh, I believe you called it sort of the pillar of of fascist ideology. So I was hoping you'd talk a little bit more about that, whether these conspiracy theories be within America or kind of comparing them um, because they seem these themes seem to repeat. So if you want to compare them to other fascist regimes that you've also written and read about. So. 
the very first article I ever wrote for a newspaper was on birtherism in the New York Times in 2011, Ways of Silencing. It's why I quit. It's why I moved from sort of purely academic work to writing for the newspapers a decade ago. Because when birtherism came on the scene, I basically said, okay, I have to drop everything because as the child of two Holocaust survivors, I'm well aware that conspiracy theories mark the beginning of an end to democracy. Um, What conspiracy theories do, uh, or certain kind of conspiracy theory, is they they mark out your enemy as, uh, as fundamentally satanic as fundamentally opposed to, to all values, all virtuous values in civilization itself. Um, and I think, I think once you start conspiracy theorizing, you can't help but ending up in with anti-Semitic conspiracies. Um, because uh, I think anti-Semitism fundamentally uh, is an ideology that, that represents Jews as at the center of a conspiracy to take the world over. Um, and so ultimately, so now this is not to say that Jews can't, Jewish people themselves can't use conspiracy theories. They can and do. Uh, there are many Jewish uh, supporters of far-right nationalist movements. Um, but it's to say that the structure is an anti-Semitic structure. So at the very heart of national socialism was the conspiracy theory, the protocols of the elders of Zion, the forgery. Uh, which was supposedly written by Jewish people, by by the elders of Zion, Jewish people. And it was this incoherent thing where wealthy Jews were supposedly promoting social justice movements in order to promote minorities, uh, women and minorities, to take to, to to do a race war, to take over from whites. And then white the, genocide. White genocide. <laughs> yeah. And then mm-hmm. the Jews could then take over and impose world communism. So that's the protocols of the elders of Zion. It's quite the, a tale. Yeah. It's quite a tale, but it's very familiar. Henry Ford gave out 500,000 copies of the protocols of the elders of Zion, as you know, in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, so because it's so familiar, um, it's something that uh, you can, you know, constantly uh, redo. The Ku Klux Klan the basis of the second clan's ideology is the protocols. They said Jews are trying to bring around world communism by inciting blacks into a race war against whites. Uh, and then Jews will, using unions will take over and impose Marxism and communism. This is exactly the basis of today's Trump campaign. 100%. Exactly the same. I mean, it's it's... We're hearing, I mean, something that I read kind of reading ridiculous, like Alex Jonesian type sites. Um, there was the story of um, I saw, you know, the Jewish cabal, um, which were then controlling Black Lives Matter, that were then controlling the mask mandate because they wanted to hide patriot faces from God. You know, this sort right. of like just it, but it can all that's sort of what I loved about your book is how fascism alters an entire reality. It doesn't just um, it doesn't just give you random conspiracies to, you know, fold into your worldview. It kind of constructs an alternative reality where you've explained that debate 
becomes impossible. So can you talk a little bit about um, this idea that, because I love the way you put it, because there's that argument like, okay, we're on college campuses. We need this healthy debate, right? You can't thrive academically or intellectually if you don't have opposing viewpoints coming in. But as you point out, it's not so much about opposing viewpoints. It's about kind of this, this platform being unavailable for debate. Yes. Once you, so people say, oh, you got to have every viewpoint in there. But some viewpoints, by their nature, seal off other viewpoints from rationality. If the viewpoint is black Americans are inferior or black people are inferior, intellectually inferior, then you've represented any black person who tries to argue against that either as intellectually inferior or as self-interested in trying to argue against you that, you know, they, that, uh, that they can't be rational. Uh, you know, so if you say women are inferior, you know, then any woman arguing against you automatically can't be rational because they're a woman. And so they have a stake in the matter. And so, yeah. and, and what these ideologies that represent other human beings as less rational by their nature, because if they're women, if they're black, if they're Muslim, um, uh, the uh, or having a secret agenda, say, and so not being reasonable because they have a secret agenda. What that means, these very ideologies say that you can't have rational debate with them. If the ideology is women can't be rational, then how could you have a rational debate with a woman? <laughs> so, uh, and then you're not being rational because the very premise of your debate is that women can't engage with you. So very central to scientific racism from its very inception, this is something that Stephen Jay Gould brilliantly discusses, uh, is, uh, is in the mismeasure of man. Uh, scientific racists have always viewed themselves as more, more objective, as heroes for free speech, uh, and in all their terrible errors, uh, you know, if you want uh, a clear example, there's Frederick Hoffman's 1896 Race Traits of the American Negro, which I discuss in how fascism works, and he declares himself as purely objective and scientific. And it's true that he has many, many charts and statistics there arguing that black people are physically weaker than white people, slower than white people, can lift less weight than white people. Those are things that we, anyone now, and they're not part of contemporary racism, that black, black Americans are physically weaker. But that was considered objectively established fact because what he did is he took a whole bunch of statistics on uh, on black American soldiers uh, and physical training on them and showed that uh, they uh, that white soldiers could lift more weights and were faster. Um, but what he didn't consider is that black Amer the black soldiers were malnourished. Um, he didn't consider that black soldiers got worse treatment. He erased racism from, from it. So what this quote unquote objectivity do does is it makes you, it masks reality from you. It's interesting that this person would have <clears throat> written about uh black folks being uh, weaker when there are also sort of the opposite stories, right, of whoever is that other of the uh, of the, you know, rural white population, uh, racial others, uh, people who have different gender identities, sexualities, uh, people who are Jewish. Obviously, there's this 
um, kind of what you said, like there's this satanic element, um, especially during sort of like the long term war on drugs. Black Americans were painted as, you know, monstrous, impervious to police bullets. And uh, yeah. I think all of that, you know, because we have this sort of scientific racism and then we have sort of the more overt racism, which we uh, still have today, I'd say. Um, but uh, I could you kind of talk about these these panics that are created over these villains that are often considered satanic, monstrous, or um, inhuman in some way, and how those themes show up again and again, like these particular panics that we've talked about, you know, like the sexuality of teenagers, um, protecting uh, children from, you know, stranger pedophiles, um, anything from, you know, the stories of the Illuminati to satanic cults that we're seeing again. So can you just sort of talk about how these themes of panic and these themes of fear come back again and again in uh, fascist ideology? So fascism really centers violence. The idea is it's a it's a war. It's a, your leader represents the nation and there are the people who are trying to destroy the nation. Um, there there's there's various kinds of opponents in fascism. There's the brilliant coup plotters of fascism, the, the, the element of the leftist radicals that is often historically played by Jews. It could be played by Muslims, seems to be being played by Muslims now uh, in U.S. politics. And then there's the people they're trying to incite, you know, uh, uh, black Americans in this case. And then you, uh, so so since it's war and you're trying to incite violence against your enemies, um, the minorities, the leftists, etc., cetera, uh, you need to create fear and panic. You need to justify violence against them. You need to justify uh, brutality against them. And so you need to. So you, it's no surprise that Hitler borrowed tropes and argued that we that Nazis should borrow tropes from the Allied First World War propaganda about the Germans. Uh, the Allied First World War propaganda about the Germans represented the Germans as monstrous brutes raping non-German women, uh, and so uh, so this. Patriarchal masculinity is central here because what you do is you represent the other as a threat to your women. Uh, and, children. Be, uh, and children. And <laughs> children. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, it puts it all together. It's a threat to the patriarchal family structure. So, and you say to men, you can't protect your women and children. So two of the great conspiracy theories the last several centuries, one is blood libel against the Jews. The idea that Jews are kidnapping Christian babies for their for their religious rituals using their blood. So you're saying, you know, you have to do violence against the Jews because you have to protect your families. And then uh, the uh, conspiracy theory behind lynching of black Americans, which said black black men were uh, raping uh, white women um, these were threats to masculinity. It rep told men, you can't take care of your women and children. Um, with QAnon, we have the, them all together. Uh, we've, got the, uh, we've got the blood libel is, is inside QAnon. Um, and all of them appeal. They raise the, the fear of loss of masculinity. You can't protect your family. You need a strong leader who's not going to be bound by liberal things, by, by human rights, who's going to bash the opponent and save your family. 
Uh, Ida B. Wells long ago in Southern Horrors identified the structure as centered around patriarchal masculinity. Um, she said, she said, speaking to white women, she said, this represents you as in need of protection by white men. She's like, this, uh, this represents you as lacking an agency, unable to fall in love with, um, with a uh, black man. Uh, and you, you see this all over the world. You see it, as I discuss in my book, the Hindu love jihad, the, the idea that Muslims in India are, are targeting uh, uh, Hindu women um, to marry them and bring them over to Islam. So that has motivated enormous anti-Muslim violence in India. And it's, again, based around patriarchal masculinity. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I think that what is also at the center of this, uh, which is a, a part, obviously, if not the heart of patriarchal masculinity, is the idea of the white genocide. And I think that that is like underlying. And I think people don't even know they're afraid of it almost like it's this underlying anxiety that's then exploited. Um, so would you mind talking a little bit about that? And maybe if it does relate to other places, because it's not like whiteness is the default, but it's whatever, right? The colonizing kind of overclass is. Oh, brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You can't, you can't, disentangle race and gender here. Um, uh, racism, uh, th this kind of uh, white supremacy, its, its ugliest manifestation is the, the fear that, uh, that uh, non-whites will take over and, and you know, take your women, quote unquote, your women. Uh, so it's no surprise that in historically in American racism, the people that were considered 
most inferior were not blacks or whites, but mixed race people. In Frederick Hoffman, he argues he's scientifically shown that mixed race people are the weakest, the most prone to disease, the least intelligent, the most venal, the most criminal. Um, and, you know, so because that's supposed to be the most horrific of all. Uh, so loss of cult cultural dominance. Um, this is the center of fascism. Center of fascism is hierarchy. The hierarchy of white over black, white over non-white, the hierarchy of man over woman. Uh, so, uh, so white replacement theory, you know, when in Charlottesville, when they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. Many people misunderstood that as saying Jews will not, will, you know, we will not have a society that's more Jewish than non-Jewish. No, that's not what it was. The Jews, what the Jews were supposedly doing was replacing white Christians by non-white Christians, by non-whites. <laughs> you know, not replacing them by Jews. <laughs> so right, the idea right. is that that um, you know, white genocide. This was the this was central behind the uh, Tree of Life killings uh, uh, two years ago, uh, October twenty seventh, almost exactly two years ago from the recording of this wow. podcast. The Tree of Life killer was focused on the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, um, which uh, which sort of is emblematic of this idea that Jews are bringing immigrants in to replace the white race. Uh, now this gets, this gets to how to think about this internationally with, say, India, where we're not talking about any whites. We're talking about a dialectic between Hindus and Muslims. Um, but you have the same thing, this fear that Muslims will replace Hindus. I just also wanted to touch on the fact that this work is really personal for you. And you mentioned that your family had survived the Holocaust, but I know that there's a little bit more to that story. And I was just interested in that because it'll really inform, I think, why this work and kind of carry on carrying on this kind of work has been really important for you. So I think uh, principally or for your for your point that both my parents are um, have been the targets of uh, of the kind of conspiracy theorizing and vilification that faces uh, black Americans, for example, in the United States and Muslims and Mexican immigrants. And I was raised with these stories from my family, uh, not necessarily of the violence they encountered, uh, and both of them did experience terrible violence, um, but of the uh, neither were in death camps, but my father lived through Kristallnacht was and was beaten on the streets of Berlin uh, as a child, as a five year old. Uh, but both of them remembered uh, how they were represented as monstrous, as viruses, as enemies of the nation. My father told me about how when he first learned to read, he realized the horrific things people were saying about about him. Uh, and my mother, when she was repatriated back to Poland at the age of five, and she lived in Poland until she was eight, there was still horrifying anti-Semitism. And the way in which people talked about Jewish people as diseased, as dirty, as, as evil, as threats, uh, as satanic, these ways of talking about them affected them their whole lives. And so for me... What we see when we see these discussions of Sharia law, for instance, these conspiracy theories about Muslims, uh, when we see the way that our, our, our president and his administration are speaking of immigrants, uh, I know 
that six, seven, and eight-year-old children will be scarred by this talk, even if we overcome this horror. They will be scarred by their talk, and they'll pass it on to their children in the way that my parents passed it on to me. Um, their, their children will be able to identify things in the future, as I've been able to identify things. But it also brings with it a kind of uh, lifelong trauma that I wish, frankly, we could avoid. I think that that's, I mean, it's, man, I don't know. I, it's a little, I'm a little speechless because it's so incredible not to flatter you, but you know, you've been able to, to achieve, I think sort of in, in the honor of things that have happened in the past. And then also amidst what promises to possibly be at least a lot more conflict of some kind going forward uh, as we see these themes, these stories, these narratives, these conspiracy theories really propping up this administration. Um, And I guess uh, we'll see what that means going forward. Um, So lastly, uh, something we like to ask of our guests uh, is, after flattering you, I will humble you, um, is, (laughs) is there a time that you believed something that wasn't true, whether that be, because I don't know if you've gotten to any of the episodes where I talk about my past as a conspiracy theorist and how that really, and my father as a prepper Illuminati person and how that really affected me and how I had to pull myself out of that type of thinking. And what did it was going a little too deep and finding the anti-Semitism underneath and saying, oh, wait, what am I doing? Um, And so I'm wondering whether there was something in your life that 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 duped you yeah uh, ironically i mean uh, ironically given the segue um i would say it was being misinformed of the history of israel <laughs> uh i thought that uh that israel had always been occupied by both jewish people and palestinians and uh palestinians hadn't been driven off their land and, uh, and in fact, just were murderous towards Jewish people and, uh, and unfairly wanted to claim the whole land as their own when Jews had always lived there. And the culture was always Jewish and Palestinians. Well, I, I believed an incredible number of false things uh, about Israel. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and I was extremely resistant to being told that actually... Jewish, you know, I mean, my parents were people who fled Europe, but that Jewish people who fled other countries removed Palestinians from their land. And, uh, and this, it was very, I was very resistant to learning this. It, it seemed to me anti-Semitism at first. And then I realized that actually Palestinians are just like me and, uh, and they've had an experience of horror at the hands of my fellow Jewish people. And uh, and my res- there was this resistance I had to accepting that because of course I identify with uh, Jewish people, Jewish Israelis. Um, so that to me was a big moment that happened not so long ago, uh, maybe twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, when I first realized the history of Israel and had I been blanking out that history because it ran against the things that I so much wanted to believe and was raised believing. 
It's uh, really hard to wrench yourself out of those things we talk about on the, the episode of, of, you know, confirmation bias and also yeah. like this belief polarization where basically if you're presented with counter evidence, you just even want to double down harder. And so I think it's just it's like this wrenching apart because it is it's your reality that you're wrenching apart. And, yeah, exactly. and that's terrifying for people. And that's why there is some sympathy empathy in my heart because you know it is it is propaganda that is affecting people who don't otherwise sort of uh want to seek out nuance uh like we're talking about like you want to seek out the nuance of the israeli-palestinian conflict and how complicated that is for you emotionally um and it's something we all have to do constantly uh and it's not easy and it feels bad but if we yeah. have But then when you wrench yourself out and you look at reality, I then became terrified about the safety of the Palestinian people. Uh, I mean, I'm worried about the safety of everybody in Israel, both sides, because they both vilify each other. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are so many people who are in the position that I was of believing false things, of believing that no wrong was ever done to the Palestinian people, that their claims are entirely groundless you know, yeah. and so I know that, and that justifies tremendous violence. So yep. when we these stories, these conspiracy theories, they're there to these falsehoods are there to justify tremendous violence against others um, who seek to uh, really just have equality. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And- yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think that's a really good note for us to end on. So. Um, Thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. Uh, I, I just again, it matches up so much with with the panics that we talk about here in the conspiracy theories. So I think that our listeners uh, are probably getting a whole lot out of this. So thank you. thank you again, Jason. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thanks for the work that you and your podcast do. Yeah, you too. Okay. <laughs> As of this recording, in fact, as of just a few hours ago, Joe Biden won the 2020 election and immediately the alarmist disinformation about voter fraud has exploded, starting at the highest levels of government and trickling down. I believe Jason's message resonates even more deeply now as we wait to see how this administration behaves in the coming months. Please go check out How Fascism Works. It's vital. And next time on the show, we're talking about some of the most catty queens of fake news. That's right, televangelists. This episode was produced by Miranda Zickler with sound by ClearCommo Studios. Please consider becoming a patron. You get extra content every month and also come and check out our social media. Thanks as always for listening as we move forward together into whatever the future brings ready, I hope, to keep working hard. But for now, I hope you let yourself have a great week. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. 
How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.